Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Each week we talk about the technology behind the energy news and we review our weekly issue, which is just out. I'm Peter White and I'm joined today by Harry Morgan, our senior analyst who focuses on the emergence of hydrogen. Hi. Um, our solar analyst, Andrew Zwantanar. Hello there. And sadly, our publisher, Simon Thompson, is off today. Um, on the show, we'll discuss our new research paper, uh, and that's on the subject of just what proportion of transport will come to rely on hydrogen. We'll look at what's been said about the US introducing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, is it likely? And take a detailed view of one particular virtual power plant supplier in Australia who tells us how he sees VPPs developing, not just there, but uh, in the Asian region as well. First up, it's Harry with his new report on uh, hydrogen transport, which is entitled Heavy Duty Transport Transition Will Rely More on Hydrogen Than Batteries. I'm afraid I've settled in with that uh, headline, but um, well, what's this all about, Harry? Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, the, the title infers that it's about heavy duty transport. Um, I mean, the, the, the research paper itself is a more of a dive into our research across the um, transport space and looking at how batteries versus hydrogen will compete for, for different technologies um, and also how that competition will really lead to an acceleration of decarbonisation um, and, yeah, really the, the, the dominoes falling in um, combustion engine infrastructure and things like petrol, diesel forecourts um, becoming abandoned in, in the same time frame. When I first started doing the, um, the, the uh, electric vehicles, um, doing anything more than passenger vehicles seemed to be a bit too much of a, uh, of a push for the first uh, pass. And passenger vehicles are obviously massively energy, you know, electric vehicle based and with only a handful of uh, hydrogen uh, fuel cells. But obviously this whole issue of the heavier it is, um, the more distance it's got to travel with, uh, with refueling times um, changes the dynamic as we go up the scale. Yeah, definitely. So if we're looking at passenger electric vehicles, you're right. Um, Lithium-ion prices have come down so much that, and as you often say, Peter, it's not necessarily the best technology that always wins. So it will be battery electric in the passenger vehicle space for 99% of vehicles in the future. It may not be lithium-ion, um, and and, and we'll, we'll we'll definitely cover that in other episodes of this podcast and in throughout Rethink Energy's coverage. But the the battery electric and the charging infrastructure uh, is here to stay. Um, uh, we're, we're already over 20% electric vehicle sales uh, in many markets now. Um, that'll be over 50% by 2025 in many markets. Um, and in some in some parts of the world, there'll be more EV electric vehicles on the roads than petrol and diesel vehicles on the roads by the early to mid-2030s. So it, it, that, that shift really is being consumer-led and being um, accelerated incredibly quickly at the moment. As, as we, we were saying, as you start to scale up towards the commercial end of the spectrum, looking at LCVs and heavy duty trucks, uh, it becomes slightly different. So you obviously have really high utilization of these vehicles being used for many hours in the day and traveling very long distances, often more than the, the 300 miles of a traditional EV battery will allow. And because of the, often these vehicles are much heavier, the range is much less. So that's where we're going to really start to see a shift towards hydrogen. Uh, obviously, as you scale battery capacity, uh, that scales weight 
uh, linearly, it also scales um, cost linearly. Whereas if you can scale a fuel cell, yes, you might need one with slightly larger power for a larger vehicle. But realistically, in terms of extending range, all you need is a larger tank for the hydrogen, be that hydrogen, be that ammonia, be that liquid hydrogen. But how or any how close are, are we to solving the issues of how you store the hydrogen in a small enough physical tank in, uh, in a truck? So we're definitely seeing um, the early stage um, units being brought online sort of this year, next year, um, definitely in the sort of pilot range and seeing what, them. What kind of range will they have? They'll have a competitive range to traditional electric vehicles. And while that doesn't sound too exciting at this point, um, we'll, we're definitely looking at towards the future being able to yeah, use more efficient um, storage techniques, um, possibly moving towards liquid hydrogen, where then suddenly you can see trucks with potentially thousands of kilometers range in a day. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at the moment, all you've got to do is set up infrastructure, which is 250 miles apart, uh, and you, you fill up every 250 miles, and it takes five minutes. That's that's everyone's vision. But I mean, how many? How certain is that? We're building it out. I know in parts of Europe, even in America, but it's 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 a matter of how much build out there's going to be there. Yeah, in terms of the build out of the hydrogen infrastructure, I think one thing you've got to the the main thing to realise here is that it's hydrogen is going to really come sort of in hubs basically so when we're looking at where hydrogen is being produced and used that's where that's likely to be co-located in many instances and that's also coincides really nicely with where you're going to be delivering um the products created from hydrogen from so say you've got a steel plant and you're going to be delivering steel um from that steel plant uh, you'll have hydrogen being produced near near to that site You'll have it being um, used for the steel production process, but you'll also have it used in the vehicles that then are uh, used to transport the steel. And because you've got a thousand kilometer range potentially in some of these vehicles, you don't need to um, refuel at the end where you're dropping it off to the customer. You can just drive it back to um, to base where it is then refueled, or you can drive it to another in industrial hub where there is another hydrogen refueling station. So it's not going to be like the um, petrol diesel infrastructure we've seen in the past where it's a petrol station uh, every sort of 40, 50 kilometers. It's definitely going to be a, a case of well, having them more uh, distributed um, around. And I think that really lends itself well as well to a future when we're starting to look towards autonomous vehicles, which to be honest, we are in the sort of 2035 timeframe, uh, which is when we expect to see a massive uptake in, in hydrogen trucks. Um, once, if those, if those can be sort of managed smartly, then you don't necessarily need to worry about, oh, how's the driver driving? You can predict very accurately how and when um, the truck will need to refuel. So that's that's going to be very important in terms of but you can do that, where the infrastructure is located. Pretty much on an app. I mean, I, I, I'm not a great believer in autonomous driving. I believe it when it gets regulated, um, when, when people allow it to happen it, across more than one American state. I mean, at the moment, I'm, I think the jury's out on the rate of adoption of that. I know in, in the Pilbara, there are, there's already hot, you know, automated trucks in Australia. Uh, into you know so so that that kind of thing is um, um, I don't think that needs to obscure the argument if you see what I mean pro hydrogen no it definitely is, not you know how long do you have to sit and wait if you recharge a, a, the battery on a truck having just driven three hundred miles you know that's the, that's the question and if it's five or six hours. Um, then no one's going to live with their truck being out of commission for five or six hours. No, exactly. And I think that's that's largely the business case around hydrogen. I think there will be some electric... And we have in our model built in some business case for electric trucks when you're looking at low utilisation rates and looking at potentially in intra-city uh, transport. So if you're just delivering within a small... Um, 
a sort of a small area and there is that case where you can sort of nip in for a quick charge when you're when you're dropping things off and there is sort of readily available infrastructure for that but when you're looking at sort of a larger scale transport i think yeah that's when um fuel cells and hydrogen really have a, a large business case um when we're looking at um other um, types of freight as well so looking at shipping uh looking at aviation that's when again batteries just don't really scale to the business case so we're very much looking at ammonia for shipping um yeah, uh, yeah. in in the nordics i came across a few um ferries that are gonna use electric um power for shipping but they're over minute distances i mean it's it, it's really unrealistic to expect um that to be carried out over um the longer distances yeah and we're seeing excitement around electric shipping now because the battery the battery technology is there and you can implement it in ships now but yeah as you're saying peter it's not being used to the scale where we're seeing most of the, the emissions from the shipping industry um we're certainly not going to see electric ships traveling for two days three days straight um on batteries on board basically the only thing those would be able to deliver is themselves if they're going to be um have so many batteries on board to be able to travel that distance so i think again yeah that's that's where hydrogen really comes into play and specifically ammonia in the near term can you imagine the Suez canal blockage which was caused by a ship which got its uh, navigation wrong um being uh, i'm sorry i'm blocking the whole Suez canal because i've run out of battery yeah exactly um and i think that's and that's the kind of thing that you could potentially expect to see especially if there's battery failure failure rates and such so i think yeah it, it very much lends itself to two hydrogen there and we're seeing that already i mean if, if, if you talk about the Suez canal we're seeing pilot projects there that are very much set up around um providing vessels with green ammonia there to for fuel um, and i imagine those sort of port infrastructures will lend themselves very well to building out hydrogen infrastructure both for industry and for transport to any engineers out there who are, uh, are sitting there shaking their heads um harry's an engineer he's done the calculations on this the truth is that there's a lot of naysaying around hydrogen um, and a lot of it hinges on some throwaway comment, comments from Elon Musk and people who want him to be right. But you got to remember, he's got a massive vested interest in the continuation of the battery vehicle. And no one's saying that's not going to continue. I mean, no one's saying that. He's simply looking at the physical properties of how we move things and looking at what's the most appropriate and the, the rate at which the infrastructure is developing. And now we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars being promised to the hydrogen uh, rollout. Um, and, uh, you know, Harry has written a, a full global forecast of hydrogen. And here he is just simply uh, explaining how um, uh, our, our annual primary electricity report, how it, it calculates uh, hydrogen requirement for um, for transport and and these numbers are in this report it can be bought from the forecast and data tab on our website and you can subscribe to the service uh, and you get this forecast for free there's a news story in the weekly analysis section mostly uh, giving you the top-down um, conclusions um, and a flavor of it okay um, so we believe in that very much and uh, let's move on some senators have come up with a carbon border adjustment bill for the uh, for for the US. It's something, Harry, again, you thought would happen. Yeah, I think. Well, the US has talked about a carbon border adjustment me mechanism for a while, um, and I mean, it's 
obviously a good thing and I'm, I'm sort of got my head, my head in my hands a bit here because it's obviously a good thing we're looking for this sort of legislation and, and we've talked about time and time again on this podcast that a carbon border tax uh, to some extent is going to be one of the best ways that we can um, actually enforce the change we need on sort of a global scale and we'll see countries very much focusing on the climate ambition that we're seeing in demand centers like the EU, the US um, and Australian. And that's obviously a very good thing. The mental thing here is that the, the US is so far away from having its own internal carbon tax that um, in proposing a carbon border tax doesn't make really make any sense. Obviously, the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism is put in place so that people importing goods um, people importing goods from, from carbon intensive industries have to pay the same in throughout their production or to sell to European customers as those who are operating within the block um, who are actually manufacturing and, and facing internal uh, carbon pricing schemes. So that the fact that the US is trying to do that without having internal carbon pricing schemes doesn't really make any sense. Um, it does just seem like another level of protection. It's claiming that, that the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting program is their baseline. And then I don't quite understand. It seems to be they're averaging it across the whole sector. So again, not singling out individual companies, but saying, oh, our trucking sector is produces this much greenhouse gas. So for you to compete with it, you're going to have to produce less or suffer a, a carbon border tax. And, and the other thing they've done about it, they've averaged the other uh, numbers. They basically said, well, if China's trucking sector produces more, then we'll charge them this much more uh, at the border. But actually not saying, not singling out individual green companies that have said, no, we've got green steel, we've got green transport, we, we, we send it to America in an ammonia powered ships. We're as green as you are. No, you can't because China's all lumped in together under one banner in this bill. But that's how a lot of bills come into being. People look at the problem and go, actually, the Europeans have already done this. Let's look at their homework. And then let's phone them up and say, what were the big, big obstacles? And then you say, well, actually, a slightly better way would be doing this. I mean, I'm not sure, is the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting program, is it watertight? Um, is it uh, voluntary? Is it an estimate? It's certainly not uh, as robust as the um, carbon tax in Europe, as far as I can see. No, I mean, I, the US is is, fa is famous for being sort of leaky, I suppose, in, in its emissions um, and sort of failing to include um, things like upstream emissions from methane leakages and, and things like that. So it's it's it does seem to be an interesting standard to which they're holding themselves and holding other countries. I think when we look at the carbon intensity of vehicles in the US, for example, um, sort of passenger vehicles, then it's, it's way higher than anywhere else in the world. So I think um, to that extent, is there going to be sort of in, an incentive to import vehicles from other countries where they're, they're cleaner? Um, it, it, is, there, is that how it works? I think it would work the opposite way. I think exactly what you said would happen. That, that they would take electric vehicles coming from China and only report how much carbon um, they use it because of their electricity being heavily coal oriented and say, we've got to tax these clean vehicles and let's stop them coming into America and sell them our vehicles instead. I think that's where they are at the moment. 
I think that's where this bill is, and that's why I suggested nothing's going to happen with it. But it could mature. I mean, it needs to mature. We want to see this happen. Yeah, and I think, arguably, if, if the US has a carbon border tax, then it's a step towards it having its own internal carbon tax. Um, but... I think within the current US system, there has to be some. There has to be a lot. There will have to be a large change in certainly some people like people like Joe Manchin, who are very obviously uh, well, Democrats who are very sort of coal conscious. Um, then there will have to be some sort of change before we can see um, think a carbon tax introduced because coal will be the first thing to go in that instance. So it does seem like something which, which you know, the both sides of the political spectrum could actually tolerate, though, because it's targeted against imports and. That seems like a sort of widely popular political stance. Yeah, I mean, you look at it, it's, it's an anti-China piece of legislation. That's what it is. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's part of the rhetoric of dirty China's doing this, dirty China's doing that, which um, if you look at the, if you look at some of the figures that the US might point at, then yes, you probably will see that through things. But if you look at other, um, other standards, then it, it will be very much the other way around. I mean, if we're looking at the rate at which renewable energy is being developed in China at the moment, it's way faster than the US. So yeah. Um, that's, I think that that yeah that rhetoric is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I, I just can't see this particular version being close enough to being useful to 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 get, go through kind of committee stages and be be adopt, uh, adapted uh, until it's something that both sides can embrace. But um, it, it is primarily to punish China, and then we we can't continue to live in a, a WTO world where America can blithely tariff anything from China just because it's it's uh, protecting jobs. It, I mean, it, it needs to be a little... You know, either it is not a WTO world and we're not going to all trade on the same basis, or it is. You can't have the US picking and choosing. It, 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 they, they did the same with um, um, imports of steel and aluminium from Europe. I mean, and green steel, is it's been started in Europe. The first green steel is going to exist in Europe and you, you can't sell it in America because there's tariffs on it and there's going to be tariffs on it for another two or three years and they're still having um, meetings over it. And the only reason that, that America's even come to the table is we decided to, Europe decided to tax American whiskey in the same way. It, it just doesn't need to be tit for tat like that. It needs, to, I mean, we need people looking at um, the, the target of decarbonizing by 2050 and perhaps being less tit for tat oriented. Okay, so that's a smash and grab on uh, on Chinese revenues primarily. Um, but um, Andres really was quite nice um, to see to hear the thoughts of uh, a VPP supplier in Australia. Um, not not most not entirely parochial. Yeah, well, uh, and and this is so. I wrote an article about VPPs, uh, virtual power plants, and I, I spoke to the the co-founder of shine hub which is one of about a dozen such companies that provide them in australia so they uh, and really it's a financial and software model that um it, it doesn't actually need a um, physical installation installation it just needs software installed on the inverter and it has a cloud-based uh, system so this can scale up incredibly fast um and and because australian power prices are especially high even compared to other price rises uh, this is one of those things, um, backed up, of course, by installing batteries, not just solar, uh, on your residential, uh, you know, your home. Uh, this is one of those things that suddenly flipped into financial viability in the past, well, well since the sanctions on Russia uh, began. 
And I haven't actually read the um, the article just before it about Lavo and this home hydrogen uh, thing, but from what I saw, it's it's basically the same thing. It's something which has suddenly flipped into a much faster payback period. You know, the, the fundamental issue of, of power prices. Uh, to those who, who can't see the story uh, in Queensland, uh, there's, a, there's a table here of hmm. what it used to cost um, and what it now costs, the price of electricity. And in Queensland, 2017 prices, assuming uh, this is per megawatt hours, 76 Australian dollars, now 180, um, getting on for three times the price. And New South Wales, similar kind of growth. So, I mean, that's what that's the force which is driving um, changes like this. What can we do with the VPP? How do they make money? Well, basically, it, um, it, it just governs. Um, well, it, it aggregates, of course. It aggregates the different um, residential solar plus, uh, solar plus storage installations into, uh, you know, under a central control system. And uh, really, it's a forecasting thing. Uh, it, it sells your power onto the grid, not just as solar power, not even just as basic battery power, but as something that participates on a specific market, like the FCAS market, which is uh, free. I can never remember the full the full uh, acronym, but it's frequency control ancillary services, something like that. Um, quite a complex, very rapid response sort of thing that you get a lot more bang for your buck selling it uh, on that. And there's a few other little things. Which... Everywhere in the world starts um, batteries on frequency control because mm. when there's a problem on, on the frequency of the entire grid, you want to call on services in under a second, you know, in, in milliseconds. Milliseconds, yeah. Um, so, so frequency control is a good market to start. Yeah, well, what, what, what I heard from uh, Mr. Georgiou, who I spoke to, is that actually it, it's still not a totally, um, it's still not totally modern actually with the frequency control, because that, l l like you say, that requires extremely fast response. And so the software, the design of the inverter that's attached to the battery has to be up to that challenge. And he says that it actually isn't in, in some cases, and that um, this, this ShineHub VPP company he heads uh, actually had to take over writing the firmware for the battery in, uh, for one company, although they're not going to keep doing that. But um, so that that and there's still also a regulatory battle of some kind concerning the FCAS market in Australia. So it's it's still something which is becoming, and uh, that's that's really the thing. Um, frequency control, um, sorry, not frequency control. Virtual power plants in Australia have only reached 300 megawatts, according to to some estimates, and Australia has 16 gigawatts of uh, of, of general di uh, distributed solar. So what's that market pe penetration? It, 2%. And, but you look at the, what's necessary to scale it up. Well, you need software compatibility. That's the main thing. And you need to sign people up. That's really all you need. So, so how fast can this thing grow? Uh, well, I mean, these things can grow very fast. But what's happening is that in Australia, aren't some of the larger uh, suppliers, government-run suppliers, also in the VPP market. Government-run suppliers. Oh, well, there is the AGL group. That's a coal power company. I don't know if that's government-run. There's okay. Tesla. There's Sonnen. There's the other one that starts with S that I mentioned in this article. So, so AMO, the Australian hmm. Energy Market Operator. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It, it, it did run VPPs. Program. Yeah, yeah. But the, those are pilot projects. Then to demonstrate how effective this would be, uh, and 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 then nobody has taken it up apart from smaller companies like Shinehub. Um, there is AGL Group. Um, and I think, let me just find in, in this 2,000 plus word article, 
AGL Group, I think it has 205 of the right. 300 megawatts in the country. And that's that's a company that runs coal plants and stuff. So there is that one big participant. I think a lot of this will come in. And as you said, Andres, is, is the ability for these um, VPPs and for the installations within them to compete within that, within these markets and these residential market, uh, these retail markets within Australia. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. if you're looking at the ability of customers to make money from their installations, um, it's all well and good being like, okay, well, I can install I can still install rooftop solar and a battery in my own home, and that will that will supply me for power on 60, 70% of days, um, and that'll be fine. I won't really I won't really need the grid as often as I as I am now. But if you're looking at the potential to to scale your home system where you've then got you you've got all of your roof covered in solar panels and potentially some in your garden, you've got as much battery as you can fit in, in your loft um, and in other sort of dead space in your house. The owners of these, the the residents who are owning these systems can then make maximum use of all of the power they're storing and all of the power they're producing. Um, and if you can if you can give them access to those retail markets, which currently are being held up in terms of prices by the country's love of coal and its love of gas, then that's when the payback uh, period of these systems comes down to three, four years. Um, it's when suddenly you're seeing that, oh, my neighbor's earning hand over fist just for creating power and just for giving up his roof space and his loft space. And then you, and then that's when suddenly you see the market really explode. And I think that's something that we see once uh, once these regulations are gone and you've got um, these regulation barriers are gone. Um, and once the, the cost of the technologies is competitive, which to, to a large extent it already is. Uh, if we, uh, I love that expression to see the market explode at the moment using lithium ion as uh, a battery. If, if all of that 16 gigawatts of solar had lithium ion batteries, then we would see the market explode. It'd be an insurance nightmare. I, mean, I actually, do... my first title for this uh, article was had the word explode in it. And I thought, well, that's a bit unfelicitous. <laughs> so I'll change it to that's tipping point. Seeing, that's why we're seeing some non-lithium ion or some more stable versions of lithium ion being required before that type of thing gets embraced by bigger companies. I mean, you've, uh, the company you were talking about there was Origin Energy. Yeah, I wanted to correct myself. If you, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Origin Energy is obviously it embraced it, but hasn't? I, I can't see that they've done much with it. Well, yeah. Well, I, I think they will though, because they they already said that they would have a two gigawatt scale of VPP capacity. Um, in four years, which is pretty slow. And they said that in March, though. So the sanctions hadn't bit home. The power prices hadn't gone crazy. Um, now that they have, well, if, if they were going to do two gigawatts in four years, they'll probably do two gigawatts in two years. Uh, or uh, yeah, maybe... Yeah, I, know I can accept that. But, but at the moment, the big examples in Australia, we, we have the big battery, we, and we have the uh, mostly Tesla examples. And the Tesla ones, as your guy points out, are, are quite expensive. And they really are uh, not, I mean, Tesla is shifting, uh, will be shifting to LFP, but it isn't, um, these aren't LFP batteries. So, and and no one says they're completely immune from uh, thermal runaway. They're not, and they're they're less prevalent with thermal runaway. And until we get to solid state batteries, I think we're going to see thermal runaway in lithium ion. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity for some non-lithium ion chemistries. Australia second stop, America first stop. I mean, I, I, I really believe that's got to happen, and and it all. Uh, and also, um, if I'm making lithium-ion battery, I want to supply it to the car market right now. 
because they can't get enough. And so I'm car oriented and there's not enough spare um, for the grid unless you pay through the nose, the lithium ion uh, battery. So yeah, I think explosive is the wrong headline to use in this one, but uh, <laughs> it's- I deliberately uh, avoided I mean, it. I mean, I, okay, so uh, you can imagine if you're, I keep saying this to people that I want to talk to is, if you're a utility and you're used to supplying, you've got a, a couple of coal mines nearby, you're buying all that energy, you're supplying them it to it centrally um, to customers and the price is going up because the price of coal goes up. So you, you buy a few, you, you do some deals with some gas turbine manufacturers, that price goes through the roof. Um, suddenly your customers can all say, I've had enough of this, I'm going to supply my own electricity. And there is going to be a tipping point. And, and Harry's um, uh, working on models for this, that, that in Australia is clearly going to tip very early and be one of the shining examples when people say, oh, no, no, I don't need the grid electricity anymore, it's too expensive. I mean, I, I, might be part, I might be part of that myself pretty soon because you know, there's inflation, I've got money in the bank that's being inflated. Um, the power prices are high, but we have something like 10 kilowatts of solar power installed or more, but with no battery. So any any shower or whatever I do in the evening, or uh, it, it costs and it's so unnecessary because it could have a battery. And you look at the business model that um, Shinehub and the others offer to people, they, you, you can do it with monthly installments. Um, so that's, that's hilarious. So I totally a podcast with one guy in Australia. Uh, one guy in the UK, and I'm currently sat in Sicily. Uh, <laughs> where, by the way, I saw my first Tesla um, driving yesterday, um, so, and, and the Fiat 500e uh, is the most popular car in Italy right now. So, um, so we're, we're we're in all parts of the world at the moment, and we're seeing examples of this um, in our daily lives, which is you know not just our professional lives, but in our in our private lives. So, yeah, definitely, um, VPPs are going to happen. What about the foreign the foreign aspect of it? The, the sort of non-Western, the developing market uh, potential that uh, Mr. Giorgio believes in quite quite a lot. So he so he said. Uh, yeah, but it, but he, he you asked if, him if he was going to head to America. And he said, "What are you insane? No, no, I've got, yeah. I've got Southeast Asia to conquer first, and that that is absolutely right. Yeah, um, it's near. Can you imagine what would happen to the energy grid in Vietnam if all of those people who bought who built solar, who are being curtailed and, and nobody's letting them sell their energy, said, all right, well, I'll just get a battery and use it myself. I'll sell it locally. Um, I mean, they, they have a, a monopoly in, in Vietnam. It's illegal to do that. But if you change policy, if you change legislation to encourage stuff like that, um, that's, what, that's who should be listening on this podcast. People creating policy um, in Southeast Asian countries um, that's where the blockade is. That you could uh, you could get a lot cheaper electricity. You get away from these high gas and coal prices. Uh, all you got to do is change the law. It's not it's not, it's not rocket science. And people like Mr. Giorgio will come along, bring his technology with him, and work with a local partner, and yeah, no doubt make a killing at the same time. Okay, so I think that's um, that's pretty much. Uh, the issue this week, unless anyone wants to pit, do what Simon does and pull out um, one of the, uh, the pieces from the worlds of renewables this week, 
Well, we should, I think we should, um, I'd quite like to ask about this lava hydrogen thing, because that's another, because it's, you know, similar theme, the rooftop yeah, yeah. Um, okay. domestic that's installation. That's Harry. That, uh, you know, uh, off, off you go on there, Harry. So how, how popular is this going to be? What's its, what's its niche? It's a really interesting technology, um, and it very much ties into what we've just been talking about, because its business case um, very much, well, its historic business case has very much relied on um, what we've just been talking about. So it's a home energy, the Lavo system primarily, um, or its, its home storage system, which is its central offering, um, is a hybrid home system. So it, it's something that will pair with solar panels, but it also includes a, a fuel cell, an electrolyzer, as well as a battery um, and all of the necessary con uh, inverters and converters um, to operate there. Um, and it, it will store its hydrogen in a hydride format. So um, basically, it's just a massive hydrogen storage tank, um, if you're thinking about it in that way. And you can either use the hydrogen for electricity, or you can use the battery power for electricity, or you can use it for hydrogen in the home. How do they release the hydride? Uh, from, you know, how much energy is required to release the hydrogen from the hydride? Um, the, they, so they've been quite coy on this so far uh, in terms of the range of efficiency, but the hydro, uh, they, they say that the hydrogen from the hydride can just um, just go straight into a fuel cell uh, and then it's the fuel cell efficiency, I believe. So it should be around 70% um, conversion efficiency. Yeah, I mean, I, I, no, I just did some work on that a, a while back because we were talking to a startup who, who came up with a very neat way of just shining light on this chemical film. Um, and, and it was stored in the hydride and it did release hydrogen. It's a great storage option. Um, and, and when I looked at that, I found there was a good 15 years of papers from American and other universities digging into that. And the, one of the issues was um, once you've got it into the hydride, how do you get it back out again without wasting a lot of, you know, a, a, another set of energy? And, and that, if, if that problem has been solved, if, the, if there are solutions out there, it might it might be economic to um, to power fuel cells to drive electricity in the home and just reverse the process. It might be at some point. So yeah, that, that's the thinking here. But I, I if I if I'm entirely honest with how I'm looking at it at the moment, I can't see that it will ever be as efficient to simply charge and discharge a battery, especially with all of these new t new chemistries that we're seeing, as it will be to produce hydrogen through electrolysis. Um, store it in some sort of medium and then convert it back to electricity in a, in a fuel cell. Realistically, I think Lavo's offering only has a business case uh, in the home if you're going to be using hydrogen in the home for heating or for cooking uh, for, or for any other sort of application. And that's currently the sticking point, I think. Um, and I think what we've seen a lot of studies come out in the past, even the past few weeks, really, that have shown that the vast majority of home heating, it makes sense to use heat pumps um, and cooking. It makes sense to go for sort of conduction, induction hobs. Um, so while there will be some use of hydrogen, um, sort of blending into the natural gas grid and potentially having sort of hydrogen ready boilers to that extent, uh, I imagine if you're going to, if you've got the capacity to install a home, um, energy storage system, you're likely to also have capacity to install a, a heat pump. So I think that probably is why Lavo, and, and that was the news this week was that Lavo have somewhat shifted their business plan uh, and they paired up with SunGrow in Australia um, to pair their sort of hybrid storage systems with five megawatt solar farms. So really in this sort of middle range um, that might be used to power an individual facility. So if you're so looking how much, at- um, how much smaller is this than other electrolyzers? Oh, sorry if, if I just jumped in too early. Um, than other electrolyzers. Hmm. 
Um, so they again, they haven't they haven't specific, specifically outlined the size of the electrolyzer in in the, in the unit itself. Basically, they said that it's got a usable storage capacity of forty kilowatt hours, um, and that it can provide power around five kilowatts uh, in and out. So, I mean, it could also provide hydrogen directly if it wanted to, but I think largely it's looking to provide hydrogen as electricity. But the I think it when we're, they're looking at the energy storage system, uh, yeah, it would be five megawatts of solar farms with 176 megawatt hours of total storage with from Labo systems. Um, and I think when we're looking at this, and, we, and we've talked about this before, is that it makes sense to have this flexible flexible option when you're looking at industrial facilities that will have a need for both hydrogen and electricity. So if you're looking at your steel plants, your cement plants, or other places where you might have a need for combined heat and electricity that's where suddenly i think labor does have a a business case um and i think pairing it with five megawatt solar farms maybe even mining operations with fuel cell vehicles yeah and, and i think one one and exactly that and i think one of the, one of the things as well we're looking at is and uh, is a technology that can be produced through gigafactories and it is modular and it can be produced at scale and it, and it actually might be a really good offering for companies that are looking to decarbonize bit by bit, which is, is, is most companies, to be honest. So even if even if those um, mining operations were were fueled by electric, um, you can still run, use the hydrogen as a storage medium and run it out through a fuel cell to recharge the battery. So it, whether, whether or not you're actually using the hydrogen or using the hydrogen only as a storage medium, it's all a matter of the capital cost and the capital intensity that you're going to take up. Um, and you're going to need you need larger installations. You need an industrialized um, thought process. It's not. It's not something consumers are ready for yet. No, and I think I, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. And just the mining region, the mining case study is not not a particularly bad. It's it's quite a good example of somewhere where, yeah, well, they'll need to, uh, they'll probably need some uh, seasonal energy storage as well. So having hydrogen stored in sort of large volumes is a really good way of doing that and potentially avoiding the need to have. Um, large, large scale transmission to projects, where, uh, which is obviously a very capital intensive way of developing. So theoretically, if you can just pop up a mining, a mining station somewhere with um, on site production of renewable electricity and storage of both hydrogen and uh, electricity, then theoretically, you could then operate all year round without connection to the grid. So I think that it makes that sort of um, those sort of projects a lot more accessible um, and a lot more decentralized, which is I think how the industry is, is going. When we see one of these installed, and when we see um, a happy customer, um, then it may be a, a takeoff point. But at the moment, it's it's not at that point, is it? No. Um... Maybe maybe it's only a matter of time until um, Andrew Forrest of Fortescue notices it. Yes, potentially. I think maybe we've, we've heard a lot about Andrew Forrest about in these large scale projects. So it'd be interesting to see when he starts actually knuckling down and choosing his technologies. Okay, and that's pretty much all we've got time for on today's podcast. Um, you can find the issues by going to www.rethinkresearch.biz, B-I-Z, clicking the energy button, where you can read weekly analysis free of charge. Um, you can listen to our podcasts. You can look at our webinars. If you click forecast and data, that's the paid assignments which we, um, which we ask customers to pay for. But to become a customer is relatively cheap, $4,600. And um, you can look at all the research that's available at that link. Um, and if you need more information, email simon at rethinkresearch.biz and he'll be glad to get back to you with details. Thank you very much and goodbye.